This is The Guardian. Today, how the assassination of Shinzo Abe lifted the lid on one of Japan's open secrets. Justin McCurry covers Japan for The Guardian. And back in July in Tokyo, he went to cover the funeral of the former Japanese Prime Minister, Shinzo Abe. So around lunchtime, which I think is when I heard the service was due to begin, I um, hopped on my bicycle and cycled over. And I was quite surprised by, by what I found. I mean, there was a special table or area that had been set up for people to to lay flowers and and say silent prayers there was a huge sort of blown up portrait of a smiling Shinzo Abe located nearby where people could pay their respects a few days before Abe Japan's longest serving prime minister had been shot and killed while giving a speech Now, at that point, the atmosphere was one of grief and disbelief. Obviously, Japan has a very, very low rate of gun crime. So for Abe to have been gunned down in broad daylight just two days before upper house elections just came as a a huge shock to the system. And I think that the sense was that once Japan had got over that shock and had perhaps found out more about the assailant and his motives and all the rest of it, that this story would just go down as, as a very tragic event in post-war Japanese politics. But of course, that wasn't the case. For the past few months, Japanese politics has been in meltdown, not just from the killing of a former prime minister, but from what that killing revealed. The extraordinary links between some of Japan's most powerful people and a controversial church that's been accused of exploiting its most vulnerable followers, bilking them out of millions of dollars. It's an open secret that had never really been talked about until the assassination of Abe made it impossible to ignore. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, how the killing of Shinzo Abe uncovered secrets that have shaken Japan. Justin, how do you remember the day in July this year when Shinzo Abe was killed? Well, I was sitting at my desk at home and then news flashes came up on Twitter, on the Japanese wire services. Breaking news tonight out of Japan. The former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe rushed to a hospital after a possible shooting. That according to NHK. At first, you know, as is often the case with these kind of uh, incidents, we weren't quite sure what was happening. The, the very first news flash said something like, shots heard during a speech by Shinzo Abe. Well, Abe was doing what hundreds of politicians do in the run-up to any sort of national election, and that's make stump speeches on the streets. Uh, Invariably, it's outside a a railway station. We now know from what the suspect, Tetsuya Yamagami, has told police, and also from some very dramatic still photographs and video footage that was taken on the day, that while people were standing in front of Abe, naturally, to listen to what he had to say, Yamagami had 
approached him from behind and had managed to avoid being spotted by Abe's security detail. So we know that he walked up to within several meters of Shinzo Abe, pulled out this homemade gun, which looked like a couple of tubes bound in black masking tape, and fired the first of two shots. Now that first shot missed Abe, and he flinched, and then he stood up straight again, obviously planning to continue his speech. But just two and a half seconds after that first shot was fired, Yamagami fired the second shot. And that's the one that struck Abe uh, on the right side of his neck, uh, causing huge blood loss and, and eventually killing him. So shocking. Not least because you just don't expect this kind of thing to happen in a place like Japan. What was people's reaction there? How did the public react and what did the government do? Well, the reaction was was one of shock that Japan was was united in shock and to an extent in grief over Abe's death. We're seeing mourners go to the scene of the crime to lay down flowers, to say prayers. And when Abe's body was brought back to his residence in central Tokyo this afternoon, people lined the streets to pay their respects. He was by no means universally admired in Japan. This is despite the fact that he had a very good reputation overseas, but at home, uh, he was incredibly divisive. He was socially conservative. He didn't support things like same-sex marriage. He was a defense hawk who wanted to move ever closer to the United States. He presided over a catastrophic decline in relations between Japan and South Korea over their shared wartime legacy. But of course, for something this awful to have happened to a high-profile politician in the middle of a campaign speech was something that people just really struggle to compute. Justin, on the day that Abe was killed and in the hours and days that followed, what did we find out about the assassin and the reasons he had done this terrible thing? The information about the alleged assassin came through in a sort of a drip, drip fashion, as is quite often the case with the Japanese media and the way that they interact with police investigators. But then we started to get a little bit of detail from the police and initially... We were told that Yamagami bore a grudge against a certain organisation. Those are the exact words, a certain organisation. Some of the newspapers and broadcasters went as far as to describe this organisation as a religious group. But we were really all left in the dark as to the identity of this group. And that remained the case for several days. And then some of the more independent media broke ranks and obviously having confirmed their suspicions with their police sources, started naming this certain organisation as the Unification Church, which these days calls itself the Family Federation for World Peace and Unification, and which many of us know as the Moonies. Huh. Okay. So this assassin had a grudge against the Unification Church, which is fair to say is a controversial group called a cult by some. But how did that lead him to killing Shinzo Abe? This is where the story gets really complicated. According to Yamagami, his mother gave the church a huge sum of money about 20 years ago, reportedly 100 million yen. At the time, that was the equivalent to about a million dollars. So it's a big sum of money after she'd made that donation that the family essentially became bankrupt, that his elder brother had attempted suicide, that basically he blamed the church 
and his mother's involvement in the church for destroying his family. Yamagami reportedly told the police that he had targeted Abe because he was a supporter of the church. And as evidence, he offered up the fact that Abe had sent a, a congratulatory video message to a church-affiliated event the previous year in the autumn of 2021, in which he praised the church's commitment to traditional family values and that kind of thing. Today, today, in honouring Dr. Park Jahan Moon and all of you, I would like to express my profound thanks for your tireless efforts. But there was a, a sort of a twist in the tale as well, because it wasn't just Abe that was the source of Yamagami's frustration and resentment, but also Abe's grandfather, Nobusuke Kishi, who was a post-war Japanese prime minister, also a conservative, who had been instrumental in helping the Unification Church establish itself in Japan in the 1960s. Okay, so I'm, I'm following up to this point, that this assassin has a grudge against a church and Abe has some link to the church and so that leads him to go and assassinate the former prime minister. What happens next? Within a couple of weeks of the assassination and after a sort of quite a timid start to their coverage, the Japanese media started digging deep. A lot of the mainstream newspapers and broadcasters decided that they may have a story on their hands. Now, ties between the ruling Liberal Democratic Party and the controversial Unification Church in Japan are under intense scrutiny. When the then education minister, uh, Shinsuke Suematsu, admitted that he too had had links with the Unification Church, members of the group had bought tickets for his political fundraising parties. And then with the Abe family connection strengthened yet again. It wasn't brother Nobuo Kishi, who was then the defence minister, who admitted towards the end of July that he too had received help during election campaigns from members of the Unification Church. So this was fast becoming a political headache for the Japanese Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida, because clearly wasn't just a couple of people here and there who'd somehow got involved with members of the church, but it was becoming something that was spreading throughout his party as the media made more and more revelations. Then in August, decided it was time for a cabinet reshuffle. A new cabinet was introduced on Wednesday, replacing 14 of the 20 members. Well, by this point, he'd been in office less than a year. But I think all of these revelations about the Unification Church really forced his hand. He said he'd rooted out people with ties to the church. He'd told them to go back and reflect on their behaviour and, and to sever those ties. The problem for Kishida was that a few days later, again, as Japanese reporters started digging into the past of the new cabinet members, it became clear that he hadn't cleaned up the cabinet's act at all and that his new cabinet was also packed with members with ministers who'd had some sort of association with the church. So he was really back to square one. The opposition parties were calling for inquiries. The Communist Party said that it wouldn't stop until it had established the truth of the relationship between the Moonies and, and the LDP. The Constitutional Democratic Party of Japan wanted something similar. So what the LDP did was conduct its own survey. Okay, it does its own survey. What were the results? How many members of this party have some kind of link to the Unification Church? 
Well, the results were quite stunning. And I don't think Kishida, when he ordered this survey, expected them to produce these numbers. So the survey is now in and it found that of 379 LDP lawmakers in both houses of, of the Diet, 179 had had some sort of interaction with the Unification Church. And that what? included seven. Yeah, that many. So almost half. And that included 17 who had not simply shaken hands at an event or spoken at a church affiliated uh, meeting or anything or something like that, but had actually had members of the church help them during uh, election campaigns. 179. That is incredible. And the other stunning fact was that the largest number of members with ties to the church, 39 MPs, belonged to the faction that was once strongly associated with none other than Shinzo Abe. Justin, this is unbelievable. You've got a former prime minister assassinated by someone on the basis of what sounds like a conspiracy theory, and it leads to investigations that reveal that there might actually be something to it, that the Unification Church has far more links to Japanese politics than anyone in the country knew before. I think at this point, we need to understand what exactly is the Unification Church? Where did it come from? The Moonies were founded in South Korea in 1954. It was founded by the Reverend Myung Sun Moon. And he was a self-proclaimed messiah. Deeply conservative, very anti-communist. And what he wanted to do was to build a church around his own personality that I think it's safe to say exploited the public mood of the time. All right. Now, Mr. Mr. Moon, according to your remarkable biography, uh, at the age of 16, on Easter Sunday, you had a conversation with Jesus. Yes, he did through the revelation in Korean, they conversed. It's important to remember that we're going back to 1954. This is just one year after the end of the deeply divisive Korean War. That ended in a truce, but not a peace treaty. And with the Korean Peninsula divided by the demilitarized zone, which is still in place today, and that divides the communist north from the democratic capitalist south. The region was in turmoil. There were very genuine fears about the spread of Chinese and Soviet-style communism. And that's why South Korea at that time proved very fertile ground for a religious movement. Korea has, has a long historical connection with Christianity. His version of Christianity in which he reinterpreted part passages from the Bible was something that he believed would appeal to a lot of South Koreans who were, they were down on their luck, perhaps missing something spiritually uh, in the wake of three years of bloody conflict. That was the background to the formation of the Unification Church, and which he then took to Japan in the 1960s with the help of Shinzo Abe's grandfather, uh, Nobusuke Kishi, who, with whom he shared conservative values and a deep-seated hatred and suspicion of, of communism and trade unionism. Kishi saw having a unification church presence in Japan as a way of building an electoral base of conservative supporters. He could see the growing influence of the unification church in neighbouring South Korea and thought that its well-organised and increasingly large network of voters and, and church activists, if you like, could be useful allies in his mission 
to ensure that the Liberal Democratic Party, the Conservative Party, would continue to dominate Japan's post-war politics. Tell me about some of those conservative values. What are some things that the Unification Church believes? One of the sort of central planks of the Unification Church is that it's committed to what it describes as traditional family values. It's the sort of social conservatism that you find in religious organizations and also in conservative political parties. So, for example, in in Japan, it's opposed to legalizing same-sex marriage. It opposes allowing Japanese couples to retain their surnames when they marry, which in Japan would mean allowing women to retain their maiden names. Again, this is because they believe that that would be an attack on the traditional family unit. And this is something that we know that Abe supported. And has it spread elsewhere as well, other parts of the world? Well, it quickly established a presence in places like the US. I want to thank the Universal Peace Federation, and in particular, Dr. Hawk Jahan Moon. Certain parts of Europe, I know there's a unification church presence in Britain. The church obviously had its quirks and did some unusual things. And the one thing that I think captured the public's imagination here in Japan and and around the world were these mass weddings where you would get thousands of men and women in full wedding dress, marrying in huge ceremonies provided over by Moon. There was a surge in membership. The church appears to have done pretty well in Japan in terms of building its membership and and also securing funds through donations. You know, in fact, it's probably not entirely accurate just to describe it as a church because it used it, it's growing well, to branch out into a number of other businesses, both to secure its financial future, but also to help spread its message in places where that message may may not have been heard otherwise. So as recently as the 2000s, it entered into a joint car production venture with the North Korean government. And its other business interests include the Washington Times, a conservative newspaper, New Yorker Hotel in New York, the True World Foods Seafood Wholesaler, and it also presides over a vast real estate portfolio. So It's not just about spirituality for the Unification Church. It's turned into what appears to be a very successful and globally present money-making machine. And Justin, you told me earlier that Yamagami, the assassin, the reason why he had developed such a grudge against the church was because he said his mother had given a huge donation years ago and bankrupted the family. How typical are those kinds of stories? Well, according to a group of lawyers, actually, some of those lawyers who've appeared on TV have become sort of minor celebrities in Japan over the last few weeks, as you can imagine. But according to that group of lawyers that represents what they describe as victims of the Unification Church, this wasn't an isolated case. Yamagami's mother is not the only person who joined the church who ended up handing over large sums of of money to the organization. So those lawyers say that between 1987 and last year, there were 30,000 cases in which people lodged complaints saying that they'd been pressured into making donations that totaled the equivalent of 873 million US dollars. People are recruited, 
perhaps people who are at a low ebb, uh, who are particularly vulnerable, who may have had some sort of family trouble. And they're told that maybe by a friend or by a colleague, I think the the church has a recruitment and presence at places like universities as well. And they're told by a friend, well, I know how you feel. I understand. Come to a meeting and you can talk to people who are sympathetic and perhaps even find a solution to your problems. And it's only later, and this is based on the testimony of former members, it's only later once this message has been repeated and repeated and when they start to weaken and their defences are lowered that they they find out that these meetings that they've been attending are in fact organised by the Unification Church. And again, according to lawyers and former members, this is when the second stage of exploitation begins, when they're encouraged or even pressured into spending money that they may not really have on what what are called spiritual items. These are things like vases and prayer beads that the church sells at hugely inflated prices, but which they tell their members will help them extinguish some sort of bad family karma uh, and find some sort of spiritual inner peace. It's just amazing that a church that is so controversial managed to have so many links to Japanese politics without the Japanese public really knowing What should we make of those extensive links between Japan's government and the church? What does it tell us about the way Japan has been run? Well, it poses a question, I think. Did the political party and the church find each other because they genuinely shared certain religious values, uh, certain spiritual and political opinions? Was it that kind of fairly straightforward relationship or was there something more sinister at work. Was it in fact the case that Japanese politicians were prepared to compromise their beliefs or just ape the beliefs and opinions of the Unification Church on certain subjects like same-sex marriage because they were getting something in return? They were getting a voting machine, you know, an organisation that could go around the community, tell its members to vote for candidate A. Was there money involved? Were there other favours involved? This is something that I think is going to emerge in the coming months, but which we don't really have a very clear idea of just yet. Was it a was it a genuine meeting of minds, or has the Unification Church really been acting as a puppeteer for one of the most successful political machines in the liberal democratic world? And what has the Church said in response to all of this controversy? Well, they haven't said a great deal. In the immediate aftermath of Abe's assassination, when those first few reports came out that named the Unification Church as the object of Yamagami's ire, it did hold a press conference early on and it voiced deep sorrow for the assassination of Shinzo Abe, as as you would expect. But they tried to distance themselves from the growing controversy, well, then in its infancy over the church's ties to LDP politicians. They did confirm that Yamagami's mother was a member. But they refused to discuss the details of her donation. They've been defensive about their own practices, but they've also gone on on the offensive. You know, having stayed largely quiet for a long time, in their most recent press conference, they did say that they believed that a lot of the Japanese media coverage of, of the church had been sensationalist, that it had been unfair on the church, that it had fomented hatred towards individual members of the church. 
who who felt unsafe uh, because of the focus on their organization you know in the country of the church's birth south korea there have uh, of course been street demonstrations in support of church members <laughs> And Justin, what about the Japanese public? How have they reacted to the revelation that so many members of the country's ruling party have links to this church? This is one of the most surprising developments of this whole saga. Gone from feeling this sense of sadness and shock over the violent death of Shinzo Abe, and I think that's still felt keenly among people, particularly his supporters. There's no question over that at all. But that sentiment has shifted, I think, quite dramatically over the last two and a half, almost three months now. So now we find that the prime minister, the current prime minister, Fumio Kishida's approval ratings have slumped to the lowest level since he took office last autumn. And this is mainly because of the revelations over the LDP's ties to the Unification Churches. It's also based around opposition to Kishida's plans to hold a state funeral for Abe. Now, some of those objections were over the cost, but mainly connected, again, to the LDP Unification Church scandal. One of the things I'm wondering is, how did it take this long? How did it take decades for the influence and the role of this church to finally be unearthed? Here, you could write a dissertation on the role of the Japanese media in answer to that question. If you're interested in Japanese post-war history, and if you're interested in Japanese party politics, and if you have an interest in the role of Japan's indigenous religion, Shinto, the influence of new religions, if you're interested in all of that, these revelations about the Unification Church, having the ear of conservative politicians may not have come as a, a great surprise. But the problem was that this was a taboo subject. It was something that the mainstream Japanese media perhaps knew about, but just decided wasn't worth reporting. So what the Abe assassination has done has changed the narrative. It's blown that wall of silence to smithereens because it's now impossible to ignore. Coming up, how the Moonies scandal might change Japan. It starts the same way. Can I tell you a secret? It would start off with a random girl and just say, hey, hun, I'm going to tell you some secret now. Please don't mention it to anybody. But it quickly escalates. It just spread like a wildfire. I still sleep with clubs next to my bed. I didn't know how far this was going to go. People seldom show their true selves online, but one man He's taken it much further. I was terrified. Who is the cyberstalker behind these messages? He actually said to me, good luck proving it's me. And why is he sending them? Because he became more and more isolated. He just went within himself even further. Do you punish someone for acting out whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand? And if I could just turn back the clock, from The Guardian, I'm Shirin Kaler, and this is Can I Tell You a Secret? A story about obsession, fear, 
and the lives we lead online. Listen to all episodes now. Search for Can I Tell You a Secret wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Justin, last week we saw Shinzo Abe farewelled at a state funeral. It was a gathering of world leaders, there were tributes to Abe, but also protests and a general mood of resentment. This is where a Japanese man set himself on fire in Tokyo last week. He told police he tried to kill himself in protest against the planned state funeral for former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Which is not what you would expect for a state funeral for an assassinated Prime Minister. But I guess nothing in this story has gone the way people expected when Abe was gunned down back in July. How do you think these tragic and frankly strange events have left Japanese people feeling about their country? Well, I think this whole scandal has shaken Japanese people's faith in their democracy. But what it could do on the plus side is we could be entering a new age of accountability. There may not be a dramatic shift in the Japanese political landscape in terms of the political parties and the influence of the LDP. But what this whole business with the Unification Church may have done is heightened Japanese voters' political senses. So when they next go to the polls, they might start asking questions that they had never bothered asking before. What he or she believes, and why does he or she believe that? Does he or she have any connections outside of politics that might influence the way they they approach politics? Justin, thanks so much. Thank you. That was Justin McCurry, The Guardian's Japan correspondent. Thank you so much to him. You can follow all of his coverage from Japan at theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Harim Khan. Sound design was by Axel Kakutier. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.